Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 5 through 11 and focus our attention this morning on verses 5 through 7. This week we will deal with putting off the old man. Next week we'll deal with putting on the new man. Now please keep in mind the first phrase of verse 1 of chapter 3. If you then be risen with Christ. Because the word, the second word in our text today refers back to the, to the previous four verses. Paul says to the church, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, <clears throat> which is idolatry, <clears throat> excuse me, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. In the which you also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Shall we go to the Lord in prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a pure word and a word that is preserved for us. May we rightly divide your word today. May it speak to us and speak to our hearts. May it remind us, Lord, how much you love us and desire that we, Lord, would love you and express that through the lives that we live in Christ Jesus. This morning we pray for the Sustaita family. We pray for Esther Corral, uh, Esther Corral, whose sister Rose uh, is, is in hospital and has uh, gone through some very uh, severe uh, medical issues. We, we lift her up today. Father, we pray for the whole family. I know that they... Didn't know what to expect this week, but Lord, they trust in you we, as we trust in you to bring healing and strength, not only to Rose, but to her family as well. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. We've now come to the end of the first section of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, what is considered the doctrinal portion of the Apostle's message to this church that was dealing with the influx of the growing Gnostic heresy into its ranks. 
Now, the Apostle Paul, from time to time, if not uh, most of the time, would always, in his letters, give us a doctrinal section and then the practical section. And there's no difference here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through verse 4 of this chapter is, in fact, the doctrinal section bringing us to the teaching of the Word of God, the importance of the Word, the strength of the Word, and the strength of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second portion of his letter, which begins here in verse 5 and goes to the end of chapter 4, which is verse 18, uh, will now deal with the practical issues to be lived out that are to be a result of the doctrines that the church is to know, to believe, and to stand upon, especially in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there can be no doubt whatsoever that knowing the teachings of the Apostle, which we know is the Word of God, and living them out practically in their lives, being doers, in other words, of the Word of God, would be one of the great weapons of their faith against the Gnostic deception. The Word of God... And living the Word of God, being doers of the Word of God, is our great weapon against the deceptions of the enemy. Now, Paul minces no words when he begins this portion of his message with what can only be considered as a violent statement. He says, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. That word mortify, if you take a real careful look at it, you realize that the basis of that word comes out of the Latin mort, or, you know, or the French mort, uh, muerto in the Spanish. It means death, or has something to do with death. So consider what Paul is saying. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Put to death, in other words, the members which are upon the earth. Now, one major problem in a lot of churches today is that there are demands for positive messages, and I say positive with quotation marks, for positive messages to come from pulpits. Because people just don't want to hear all those quote-unquote negative warnings and exhortations and admonitions, especially about sin and about evil and about wickedness. There are those who cry out today, there's enough of that around us all the time. We know all about that. We know all about these things. We don't need to hear about it in church. I beg to differ. I know that we would all agree that a a doctor, let's say, that a doctor talking positively about curing a ruptured appendix won't do a thing for the patient until the physician gets negative and surgically removes that appendix. Listen, you, you can have some horticulturalist give a, a wonderfully positive lecture on producing a beautiful garden, but it's never going to happen until somebody gets negative and starts pulling those ugly, nasty weeds. That's why I don't really like all this positive, negative stuff. We need to understand something. 
if we are truly risen with Christ, that will be evident in two areas of our lives as believers. If we are truly risen with Christ, there will be, it will be evident in two areas of our lives as believers. The first is our own personal holy living or our own personal holiness. This is verses 5 through 7, what we're going to look at today. And secondly, our own fellowship with others with whom we come into communication. In other words, how we live with others. And it brings to mind a question. Why are some Christians afraid of the issue of holiness? Why are some Christians afraid of the issue of holiness? It was an old Southern Methodist preacher who was once quoted as saying, if Methodists were as afraid of sin as they are of holiness, it would be a wonderful thing. Now think about that. If Methodists were as afraid of sin as they are of holiness, it would be a wonderful thing. And, well, you see, that's true not just of, of, of just Methodists, but of, of most believers. If believers were as afraid of sin as they are of holiness, it would be a wonderful thing. Because you see, the wonderful doctrines of Scripture encourage and exhort us to live above the standards of the world simply because we are risen with Christ. Because we seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Simply because we are dead and our lives are hid with Christ in God. And because Christ is our life. Well, that's the first four verses of this text. And therefore, and I say that because that word therefore is coming up. It says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And let me tell you what that therefore is there for. It's there to remind us of what we just said. That if you then be risen with Christ, you seek those things which are above. You set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Because that's where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. And you're dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God, and Christ is our life. Therefore, put to death your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So the believer's new life in Jesus Christ, according to Paul, has demands that can be considered violent. We are to put to death all sins that enslave the body and its members. Once again, the word mortify comes from the Greek word nekru, which means to put to death. It means to give to death. It means to make a corpse of something. The believer in Jesus Christ is to take the various parts of his or her body and put them to death insofar as sin is concerned. Because we have died with Christ, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
We have the spiritual power to slay the worldly, fleshly desires that seek to control us. Paul described it this way. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. I would urge you to mark this and especially look at that word reckon. I reckon it's there for a reason. But that's not the reason I said that. That's just another way of using the word reckon. That's not the way Paul uses it here. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It reminds us greatly again of of what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's significant that it is the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would have put too much emphasis on Paul's faith instead of the faith given to us by Christ. But anyway, we're not looking at Galatians 2.20. The point is here, likewise reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, we know that he's not talking about some kind of physical death at this point. And I want you to understand how Jesus put it. Jesus put it in these terms. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, when dealing with some of the similar things that we're going to talk about here in just a moment. But Jesus said, and if thy right hand, uh, I'm sorry, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and that, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And of course we know that, that, uh, that Jesus wasn't speaking literally here. Because you see, and, and, and we know this from other things that Jesus said, but we know this because the understanding is that sin doesn't come from any, any physical member of the body like the eye or the hand or the foot. The eye or the hand or the foot doesn't work independent of the soul and the heart. So it comes from the heart. It comes from that wicked and evil desire that is within Even more specifically, it comes from the the sinful nature that is in man. And therefore, Paul uses the word reckon when he says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead. He uses the word reckon, which is the the Greek word logizomai in, in in the book of Romans here, which means. And listen to this. It means to take inventory and account of. Take inventory and account of. It's, it's very similar in thought, at least, to what Paul says when he uses the word examine. Examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Individually, examine what, who you are, what you are, what you have, what you don't have. But what you do is examine yourself to see if you are in the faith of Christ. So what he's saying here in, in Romans 6.11 is take inventory and account 
of being dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what the apostle was saying in Romans and here in Colossians is that a person who wants to live for God will look at their body and at, and at sin, and the only way to conquer sin is to treat his or her body as dead to sin or to consider sin as dead to the body. Now, that life, that life is only possible through Jesus Christ. It is not possible in the flesh. It is not possible in the, in, in the thinking of saying, listen, oh, listen, I, 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 I have the, 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 the willpower, you know, to, to not do certain things. No. You may have the willpower not to do certain things, but you don't have the willpower not to do other things. I'll explain that a little more in just a couple of minutes. That life of reckoning ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God and Christ is only possible in and through Jesus Christ. That's it. Christ alone, through the power of his Holy Spirit, can work within the human heart and give it the power to conquer sin permanently and eternally. And I don't say that in in exaggeration. I say that just based on the scriptures. And again, that can only be done through Jesus Christ. There are those, and here's kind of the explanation of what I was just saying. There are those who can discipline themselves to overcome some sin, but not all sin. I am well aware, because I know by personal experience as well, that there are some things that I have overcome in this life over 40 plus years of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have overcome something. Not, not me. I know that it's, it's the Lord. But I stay out, you know, you know, away from certain things and have for a long time. Yet that doesn't mean that that's everything yet in my own life. There are still some things that I have to surrender to the Lord. We wake up every day realizing, okay, well, we've conquered this, but oh, there's another couple of things that need to be conquered here. But I can't conquer them in my flesh. I can only conquer them in the love of Jesus Christ and in the mercy and grace and truth of Jesus Christ and by the power of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's an enormous difference. And by the way, when we overcome something, it is not permanent and it is not eternal if we do it. But if Christ does it, it is. So there is an enormous difference between human discipline and godly control. The Gnostics were banking on that human discipline. Any religion, any any religion of man, any religion of the flesh is banking on human discipline to get you to a certain level of, of belief or whatever. But the difference between human discipline and godly control is the person of Jesus Christ. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Just go back about two pages in your Bibles. I want to hear this. Okay. That's good. Because you, can, you can't get that off your, off your phone. Yeah. Unless they have an app now that makes the pages sound. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. To the church, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, sometimes we get confused with that statement. Very simply, 
work out your own salvation is very similar to exercise your own salvation. How, how do we know that? Because we say the, word, the words work out all the time. Where are you going? I'm going to go work out. What are you going to go do? You're going to go exercise. You work out your own salvation in the sense that you are exercising your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because of verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God which worketh in you. Christians, we don't come to the place where we say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I'm going to be doing the work from here on. No, we don't do that. We surrender ourselves to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We realize that he wants to take us and make us and mold us and shape us into the image of Christ And he does that daily as we surrender to him daily. It is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is that telling us? It also tells us that we're dying to ourselves, We're dying to our desires. We're dying to our needs. And we say, Lord, it's not my will, but your will. Let it be done in me. You lead me and you guide me. And by the way, the flesh is always ready to throw out the list. And say, but look, Lord, we can do all of these things our own selves. Right? We're always ready to tell the Lord, I think I can handle it from here, Lord. You just rest. I'll like to slap me ten times if I ever thought about saying that. It's God who worketh in you. In fact, if you just go back a page to Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, notice what Paul says, being confident of this very thing. That he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Who performs it? The Lord does. He which began a good work in you. Well, who began the work in you? It wasn't you. It was the Lord. He began the work. And guess what he'll do? He'll perform that work in you until the day of Jesus Christ. The day that Christ comes and snatches us away from this God-forsaken world gets us out of here. You know, there's this beautiful verse in Psalm 138 that I want to share with you this morning. Psalm 138, verse 8. And it says, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Isn't that a beautiful statement? The Lord will perfect that. Now, in our study of of the word perfect or perfect or complete is, is is the understanding here. It is God who completes his work in us. It is God who perfects us. So the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Now now listen to the, the cry and the prayer of the psalmist when he says, Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine hands. Forsake not the work of thine hands. It's God who does the work. So the connection now is made with Colossians 3 verse 4. 
When Christ, who is our life, when Christ, who is our life, and remember, who is, the two words uh, that are italicized there are, are, are not in the, in, the, in the text, the original Greek text. When Christ, our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now, the question is this. What sins are to be put to death? Paul is very specific when it comes to the sins that enslave the human body. I want you to notice the connection with a phrase in verse 6. But let's read verses 5 through 7. Paul said, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication and uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now notice what it says here. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. In other words, at one time that's where you were. And that's what you were, children of disobedience. Now, what Paul describes in this passage here are not only terrible acts of disobedience toward God, but the sins are such that they enslave a person to become a child of disobedience. What Paul is telling them is that these sins belonged to the old life and have no place whatsoever in our new life in Christ. They have no place in our new life. Why? Because we're dead. Are we reckoning ourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive in Christ? That's what we need to do. Fornication. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get those ugly words like porn and pornography, pornographic. Let's realize something before we go on. The pornography industry in the United States alone is a multi-billion dollar industry. It's destroying the nation from within. Fornication implies sexual immorality in general. Now some will say that, you know, specifically, Specifically, or you know, they'll usually use the word fornication when it talks about uh, uh, sex before marriage. But biblically speaking, it is generally any sexual immorality of all kinds, of all kinds. So it's a general word, porneia. And then Paul mentions uncleanness. Uncleanness is the word akatharsia, which, which means lewd, foul, demonic impurity. Lewd, foul, demonic impurity. Now, understand that when he links these words all together, he's tying them together in, in, in a sense to make us realize that all those separate words, nonetheless, they're still related. 
lewd, foul, demonic impurity uh, is what we see happening today. It, it's affecting not only uh, young adults, it affects old adults too, but it, it, but it affects our young people. And I will tell you that, you know, the internet and social media and all kinds of things that, that are affecting the lives of our, our children today to where they speak like the world is saying that the problem actually goes deeper. It isn't just about what they say or even what they listen to or what they hear. It's still all tied together to things that are demonically impure, which tells us something. It comes from the, it comes from the devil himself. The devil who hates your children, but desires to destroy them by deceiving them into believing that, you know, they are independent enough to make choices that will eventually, unfortunately, will, will, will hurt them rather than help them. We should know what's being heard. I know that the word stinky may not really give an impact here, but lewd and foul means it's pretty stinky. There's a stench to the things that the devil does in this world because he's all about death. And folks, death stinks. It really does. And then there's the term inordinate affection. Pathos. Which is an interesting word because it's a very general word used in a, in a lot of different ways in the Greek uh, language and has been, you know, uh, transliterated into a lot of English words as well. Pathology or you know, pathological and a, and a few other uh, either medical or psychological terms. But the term inordinate affection, pathos here, in its context, describes a strong passion, a strong craving, or a strong desire. An intense arousal and a driving, driving, driving lust. In a word, it is a desire and craving for all the wrong things. For all the wrong and even destructive things. Because it isn't just in the area of sex, but I mean, you know, you're talking about... Uh, being driven, you know, with this, this crazy desire or, or deep, intense arousal for things like food or, or alcohol or drugs, along with any other and every other pornographic material or means. It covers a lot of bases, if you will. Consider what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, and I would urge you to, to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through to the end of the chapter there. We're going to cover a couple of places here. But in Romans 1, beginning at verse 24, for just our purposes of connecting this to what Paul is teaching in Colossians, Paul says to the Romans, Wherefore God also gave them up. Now this would be those who uh, professed themselves to be wise, but became fools. So God gave them up to uncleanness. The same word that we saw earlier. Uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. To dishonor their own bodies between themselves. 
And notice who changed the truth of God into a lie. What truth was that? And what lie was it? The very same truth that we've been talking about in Genesis chapter 3. That were turned into a lie. Hath God said. And worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now notice he goes on to say, for this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. Inordinate affections, very similar. Vile affections for even, but, but, but now he gets very specific. He says, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. I, I think that we get the picture. That we know what Paul is talking about here. Men with men. Working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or fitting. Fitting. Receiving in themselves that recompense of their error. Eventually a major judgment. Now Paul does tell us in Galatians chapter 5 verses 16 and 17 why these things happen. Notice he says in verse 16, this I say then, and he speaks to the church, telling the believer in Jesus Christ, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now most of us would stop and think, well that sounds great, but you know what, it's easier said than done. Yeah, you know why it's easier said than done? It's only easier said than done until you die to yourself and you let Christ live in you. Surrender. Surrender. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he says, for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. Do you know that that's a daily event? The flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. The very things that you want to do for the Lord sometimes don't get done because the flesh is getting in the way. And it's strong. Now, it's a very interesting thing that Jesus once said when he said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak to fulfill the things of the spirit. The flesh is weak. Why? Because the flesh is strong. Do you understand now what that means? The flesh is weak to fulfill the things that only through the spirit can be done. But the flesh is strong because it wrestles against the spirit. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Now, a few verses later, there in Galatians chapter 5, after giving another list of sexual and other sins, which he labeled as the works of the flesh, this is what Paul said. So the contrast to the works of the flesh is this. But the fruit, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. 
joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Temperance being self-control. Against such there's no law. But notice verse 24. Sometimes we like verse 22 and verse 23, but we need to read verse 24. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Not just the flesh, but the flesh with the affections, the lusts, the inordinate affections, the uncleanness, the pornography or the porneia, all of these things, we have crucified the flesh with all of that. Nothing is left in the back pocket. Nothing is left in the closet down the hall in our minds. It's mortified, put to death, made a corpse of. But Paul wasn't finished. In verse 5 of our text. Because he also mentions something called evil concupiscence. Now, I, 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 made, uh, I did it on purpose. I, I, I put that verse in there a few times so that I could say evil concupiscence a few times. Just so, number one, you'll hear how it's said. And, and not only that, but man, it's one of those, you know, dollar fifty words, you know, that got a lot of letters in it. But it has a lot of meaning, too. Evil concupiscence. The Greek is epithumian kaken, which is an evil desire, an evil yearning, an evil aching for all kinds of evil, all kinds of wickedness. I've oftentimes said that we as believers in Jesus Christ don't wake up in the morning wanting to be wicked. We don't get up in the morning wanting to hurt somebody. We don't get up in the morning just can't wait to go out and just punch somebody in the nose or say something that's, that's hurtful or harmful to anyone. We don't get up to do that. But I will tell you this, there are people in the world today that will get up every day wanting to do more and more evil in their lives to someone else. We saw an, an evil situation this, this past week in Santa Clarita, California, at Saugus High School, where a student went in with a weapon and killed two people and injured others. And then he turned the weapon upon himself and eventually died. We could try to try, you know, we could try to figure something out psychologically or Psychiatrically, you know, that's, 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 that's futile. Let me just tell you outright, that is the kind of evil that Jesus talked about. When he said that lawlessness would abound, iniquity would abound, and the love of many would wax cold. 
Matthew 24. That's evil. That's getting up with evil intentions. It is that within a person that pulls them to desire, to grasp and to grab and to take hold of all forms of evil that that give pleasure to the body and its members. Paul mentions it also in the first letter to the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5, listen to what Paul says. He says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. What Paul is saying to all of us in all of his letters, but particularly in Colossians here, is that we are not to be like the world. Why? Because we are risen with Christ. We are to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And by the way, you know, we didn't emphasize that too much, but let me emphasize it now. Jesus Christ is sitting at the right hand of his Father. And let's remember a crucial factor. While we know that Jesus Christ took upon himself flesh as a child born in Bethlehem, he's no longer in whatever cave or barn we may picture him in. He's no longer a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and resting in a manger. He is sitting at the right hand of his Father, and he's there for you and for me right now. That's where he is for you and for me. And that's where we are to be in our daily walk, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now getting back to Colossians 3 verse 5. He mentions one other thing. He mentions covetousness. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, pleonexian, means to crave. It means to grasp to grab and to desire something. It is desiring to have something when it is not needed. Covetousness, described by many, is desiring that which somebody else has, but you want it. It is desiring more than what we need and more than what we should have. And then again, take note that covetousness is idolatry. If a person looks at something so much that he covets it, he has set it up as a god. He has set it up as an idol, which he pursues with the energy and effort of his mind and of his body. The last time I checked, idolatry is an abomination before God. This, of course, goes all the way back to the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai in in Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. 
And then Paul described covetousness to the Ephesians this way. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, Paul said this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. But here it is, verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. Another $1.50 word. Lasciviousness. Filthy licentiousness. That's what it means. Filthy licentiousness. In other words, having, having this idea in your mind that you have the license to do whatever you want, but to do it as, filthily as, you, as filthy as you can. I mean, look how descriptive these words are that come from the first century. And they still exist with us today. And even worse because of technology. To work all uncleanness with greediness. There it is. With greediness. Being greedy. Just wanting to have and to have and to have. But I love verse 20. Paul said, But ye have not so learned Christ. You have not so learned Christ. That's not how you learn Jesus. Jesus is the total opposite. Why? Because in Christ we have everything that we need. You see, there are two strong reasons for putting to death the sins that enslave the body, verses 6 and 7, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. So first of all, it is such sins that Paul has described that shall bring down the wrath of God upon man. That is definitely a good reason to put to death the sins that enslave the body. Because it is such sins that shall bring down the wrath of God Upon man. And by the way, the word wrath is, uh, that's being used here for the wrath of God is the word, uh, the Greek word orge, O-R-G-A, or G-E, I should say, O-R-G-E, which means anger, yes, but not the anger that rises from emotion. There's actually different words for that kind of anger that man has. This kind of anger is the anger of God. Again, you'll notice what it says. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. So this wrath means anger, but not an anger that rises from emotion. It is a decisive anger. It is an anger that comes through thoughtful deliberation. It is an anger that judges and condemns sin and evil. It is an anger that judges violence and slaughter. And it is an anger that judges immorality and injustice. It was, by the way, the word that was used by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. When it says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, 
Oh, welcome ye who are Pharisees and Sadducees, all dressed up in your nice, you know, robes and, and your phylacteries on your head and on your hands. Oh, how wonderful it is to have you here. No, he saw them and he said, oh, generation of vipers. Who hath warned you to flee from the orge, the wrath to come? I had mentioned reading Romans 1, verses 18 to the end. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God, the orge of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth or suppress, hold down. That word means to hold down the truth from coming up. Hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Sadly, too many people who are professing Christians are holding down the truth. Not wanting it to come forth in unrighteousness. The second reason we need certainly to... um, to put to death the sins that Paul has been talking about is because such sins were common to our old life, common to the old man. We used to walk and live in such sins, but no longer. And again, what is the difference? The difference is Jesus Christ. The difference is Jesus Christ. We are hid in Christ. He has saved us from the sins that bring down the wrath of God upon us. To turn back and to begin walking in those sins again would essentially be to deny Christ. Well, this is something that we cannot do. It is something that we must not do. We must never do that which denies Jesus Christ. I'd like to close by reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, to encourage you as believers, to encourage us all, each and every one of us here, To know the importance, not only of God's salvation in Christ, but to encourage you to know that the Lord is merciful and he's gracious. And he desires us to come back to him. To the Ephesians he said, and you you hath he quickened. And don't forget that the word quickened in the King James means to be made alive again. Or to be made alive. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world. You walked physically but you were dead spiritually. 
Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the enemy of our souls. Didn't really want to make himself known to you. He just kind of manipulated things in your life so that you would just keep your eyes off of him and put them on yourself. But by putting your eyes on yourself, you were putting them on him. Remember what Jesus said of those who were, who were opposing him. He says, you are of your father, the devil. I'm sure they were offended by that, but that was the truth. Jesus knew where their hearts were. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But now comes the two greatest words in Scripture put together. But God. But God. Changes the whole direction of what Paul was saying about where we were at one time. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Paul was so excited, you know, because later on, of course, you'll see that this is what he says to us, you know, by grace you're saved through faith. But he had to put it parenthetically, by grace you're saved. But I got to finish what I'm saying. He's excited about that. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where's that? At the right hand of the Father. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his poema. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We will only know that. When we die to sin, when we put to death those things that have been keeping us closer to the children of disobedience than to the right hand of the Father. But when we are aware of our presence with Christ there, how we will see the importance of walking in the works that God himself has given us to live out. We're not saved by works. We're saved unto works. We're saved by grace through faith. But he has created us in Christ Jesus unto good works. We keep that living and walking in the Spirit 
living and walking in the word of God, believing the word of God, and knowing that Jesus is coming again.